Our topic this week is from the book of Ezra, chapter 10, the last chapter in the book of Ezra, True Reformation. And this, uh, so the last four chapters of this book, 7, 8, 9, and 10, have been about Ezra and his uh, dealings. Now, he's mentioned again in Nehemiah, and we'll see that when we get to Nehemiah. But the first six chapters had to do with events prior to him being born, about 50 or so years uh, before chapter 7, comes on the scene. Chapter 7 and 8 describe him uh, going to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, and getting uh, a decree and permission to go to Jerusalem and restore and build Jerusalem for its official, the third of the three decrees from Cyrus, Darius, and then King Artaxerxes, fulfilling the Daniel 9 prophecy, and kicking that off, not fulfilling it, but getting it started, uh, bringing the fulfillment, the prophecy that there would be a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. And so Ezra comes, and then chapter 9 describes while he's there in Israel, he finds out that uh, many of the people, leaders and on down, have been intermarrying with uh, people of the nations around, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Hittites, all the other ites out there. And he falls down in prayer and mourning and ripping his beard and his hair and his garments and just in remorse that they would do such a thing in compromising in that way. And he remains there in prayer, very beautiful prayer, a prayer of corporate repentance. Now, corporate repentance is not the whole corporation repenting. That rarely happens. But a corporate repentance where he is repenting on behalf and as part of the corporation as a whole. And that is a very biblical prayer. We see that Daniel prayed that way, Moses prayed that way, uh, Paul prayed that way, many others prayed that way, and that is actually what Yeshua did. He corporately repented for the sins of the world. The whole world is not going to repent. Never has, never will, so obviously, you know, those from the beginning and on down that haven't repented, they never will. But he repented for all in and of himself. And that's how Ezra prays, we have sinned. Forgive us for our trespasses. Even though he didn't participate, he didn't intermarry with, with the heathen and unequally yoked, but he prayed as if he did, taking their sins upon himself and grieved in heart and mind and even outwardly in bodily form, ripping again his garments and his hair, affected by it, as if, again, it was his own sin. And as prophetic of the last days, that is how we need to be in prayer, that is how we need to react as we see things happen around us, the sins among us, within our world, within our nation, within our community, within our congregation, within our family. The proper thing is not to be pointing fingers and condemning and gossiping and criticizing but to be confessing, repenting, sighing and crying for the sins in the land. And that's what he does. And then here in chapter 10, we see the result of that type of prayer. And all the people still have free choice. We'll see how they react to this type of praying. So, verse 1. While Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children 
gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. That is very powerful. And it doesn't always work out that way, but praise the Lord, here it did. And it's a result, he didn't go and give a lecture, he didn't start pointing at the Bible, he didn't start hitting people over the head, he didn't start calling people out, he didn't preach a sermon, he started praying and weeping and praying again a corporate type of prayer, which led then to corporate bodily other people joining him in this type of prayer. Men, women, and children even coming and weeping bitterly over this sin that was done in the camp. And it is a grievous sin. And we saw last week, it goes all the way back to Noah's day and it will all be all the way to the end of time and it has deeply affected everywhere it has happened. King Solomon, the whole nation was ruined as a result. And so he's grieving here over it. And we should grieve now too. It's become acceptable for the intermarrying, unequally yoked faith and compromising, putting a marriage commitment before a God commitment. And so here again, it's mentioning that he's confessing and weeping and bowing down before God. And that is what brought a great assembly to him in repentance and joining him in repentance as well. And so for us already here, just in these first few verses, first verse, whether we're, God's calling us to be like an Ezra and to be praying that way for people in our family and our community and others that you know, then may we take that to heart and be an Ezra and pray that way. Or if sins apply to us, then may we be among those joining and weeping and praying and confessing our own sins that we have committed. Verse 2, Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. This also is a very powerful uh, two verses here where this man comes and then he joins, or one verse here, he joins also in this corporate repentance. We have sinned. Now we don't know specifically whether he actually had a, a pagan wife or not. He might have, but he might not have. He might have just been joining Ezra in that type of prayer. We have done this. And so he's confessing that we have trans, uh, trespassed against our God. And that's a good starting point. When we realize the love of God, he calls him our God, so he acknowledges that he is God, and that God is loving and caring, and that we have sinned against him. And then secondly, he confesses spe the specific sin that is the issue in their day, in their community, maybe even in his life. And it's more than just confessing, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for all my sins. Now that means nothing, right? You know, if someone wronged you and, and specifically wronged you and they say, if I have ever done anything that might have offended you, please forgive me. I mean, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Right? Unless they're dealing with the very issue that's at hand. And so same with us. Whether this issue or any issue, we need to acknowledge that we are sinners. Starts with us. 
We have trespassed. We have transgressed against the Lord our God. We have sinned against him and him alone. And then confession. So there's this acknowledgement that we are sinners and then a confession of the specific sin that was done. And then thirdly, he says that yet there is hope. He has faith. He has faith in the redemption. He has faith in forgiveness. He has faith in the Messiah to come. Because of the sacrifices, which was mentioned in chapters 8, that they offered the sacrifices. And that's why they came. And the first thing they wanted to do was to rebuild the temple. Be able to have the sacrifices again that led to forgiveness of sins, the blood of the sacrifices in their behalf all pointing forward to the Messiah who would come and be our sacrifice, who would die for our sins. And so he has hope. There is hope. There is hope when we confess our sins. There is hope when we acknowledge that we are sinners. There is no hope when we're in denial. There's no hope when we're just pretending everything's okay. You're okay, I'm okay. Whatever you want to do is good. Whatever I want to do is good. And yet that's where society is moving more and more. Constantly changing, moving the goalposts and changing what is moral, what is right, what is wrong. Instead of seeking forgiveness through confession, acknowledging that what we've done is wrong, there is no wrong. Of course, unless they're doing it, then that's okay, right? But if we're doing it, then it's wrong. And then if they start to do it, then and decide it's wrong, well, then it's wrong for them. And you know, there's constant changing of what is wrong and what is right. Until where there's nothing wrong. And that's not biblical. God doesn't change. He remains the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And he can bring us into harmony with him. Through this method. Through praying, interceding for others, and for ourselves, through confession, and acknowledgement of what we are, sinners in need of help. Can't get help unless we acknowledge that we need help. We have trespassed. We have transgressed. We have sinned. I have sinned. And then the specific sin, so that it can be cleansed. Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so we can be forgiven. And more than just forgiven, cleansed, freed, set free from the sin delivered from the guilt and the power that it does not have to reign over us anymore. Therefore, there is hope in Israel in spite of this. While we are great sinners, God is a great forgiver. While we have greatly wronged, he greatly is able to change what was made wrong and turn all things out together for good. Not again by whitewashing it, not just covering it. His sins don't just cover up our guilt. They remove our guilt. They remove the sin. They don't justify the sin. They don't allow the sin. His blood removes the sin. It calls it sin. It receives a punishment. It receives the death of Messiah. And not only the death of Messiah, it needs to receive our death as well. Our death to self, our death to our carnal nature. That we are transgressors. Thus we need to be born anew. Transformed, changed. 
from transgressors to victorious, righteous overcomers by the power of God. And that's the step-by-step process. For this specific sin or any sin, in any generation, in their day, in our day, in all generations, Noah's day, Adam's day, this was the process. And it's very simple and it's laid out for us. And yet people find it so hard to do. There's so much resistance to it on our carnal nature. We don't want to acknowledge that we've wronged. We don't want to confess a specific sin. We don't want to humble ourselves before God or before others. We don't want to surrender. We hold on and we resist and we resist and we resist. We deny and we run. We blame others. We point fingers. We compare ourselves with others. We justify it. Explain it away. And then, if none of that works, we just change what is right and what is wrong. But this is the process. Confess, and then there's hope. That's the path to hope. That's the path to happiness. That's the path to peace. Everything else just shortchanges it, tries to go around it. Don't worry, be happy. Doesn't work. We should worry that our sins have grieved God. They have hurt God. They have killed God. And worry that that will cause our demise. And thus confess it and receive forgiveness. And then there is hope. And then there can be joy. Because then there is release and deliverance. And so that's the path they took. And they took that path because of Ezra, because of chapter 9, because of his prayer. And so maybe there's people in your life, maybe your children, maybe your siblings, maybe your parents, maybe people you know. You're burdened and heartbroken for and you want to see them come to the Lord. Begin by praying like Ezra. And hopefully that will lead them. Holy Spirit can open doors that he wouldn't be able to otherwise without that type of praying. And here, it worked for this many that came and confessed and joined him in confessing. Verse 3. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all of these wives and those who we have born with to them, according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter is your responsibility. We are also with you. Be of good courage and do it. So this is the fourth step. Really fifth, right? So first step, someone praying and interceding. And the first step on our part, acknowledging that we're a sinner. Second, confessing the specific sin. Third, believing in faith that forgiveness is there. And then fourth, Receiving the power of the Holy Spirit to change. And then changing what was wrong. That's missing in a lot of circles today. A lot of circles just want to stop at verse 3. Just forgiven, that's okay, we're just forgiven. And then just continue to sin. Just continue in the wrong course. But no, we need to 
by God's power and only by God's power, allow him to change us. There used to be a lot of talk about behavior modification. And that was the, the other aspect, right? So change without the first three steps. No confession, no acknowledgement that we're a sinner, no acknowledgement of forgiveness of sins through the Messiah. Just change, modify the behavior. Behavior modification, right? So you're not hitting your spouse anymore, you're hitting a pillow instead, right? That's all. That's what you, you know, you go to your, 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 your shrink or whatever, and he gives you a pillow to beat up instead. You know, just modify the behavior a little bit. Don't confess that you're angry. Don't confess that you got an issue. Don't forget, confess that it was wrong. Just channel it in positive ways. That's not biblical. Biblical is confess it, acknowledge that we're carnal, and receive God's deliverance through the power of Messiah and in the power to change through the Holy Spirit. That's their roles. That's their jobs. That's why we need them. That's why they're there. That's why we have a Savior to save us from ourselves, from our natural nature that wants to do wrong. And so there's this false hope that we're just forgiven don't have to change. That's one error. Or the other error, try and change in your own strength. Try and change in your own power. If you change, then God will accept you. No, this is step four, not step one. Step one is, God is great, God is good, God is love. I'm a sinner. Confess the sin. Receive his forgiveness. And then allow him to change us and bring us into harmony with his law. And that's what it says here, that we would let this be done according to the law. Not to what man says, not to what society says, not to the changing, constant changing culture, but according to God's law that doesn't change. That our lives come into harmony with him. Right? Do you think in heaven we're going to continue to live like carnal humans? We destroy the place all over again. You think he's going to change us on our way up? The character changes here. He'll change the body on the way up. He'll give us new bodies. But the character, the mind, the heart changes here and now by the power of the Lord. That's the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the power of the gospel. For it is the way of salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile. The power of God to change us. If God can't change us, he's not a very powerful God. <laughs> right? He's really not God. <laughs> if he can't change us, if he can't bring us into harmony with his way, if he gave us laws that are impossible to keep, then he's not only weak, he's crazy. And yet that is the picture that is painted too often in religious circles. A weak and crazy God who gave us laws that we can't do and who's too powerful to make us do them and give us the ability to do them. And that is a sad testimony. And I think that's one of the reasons that there's less and less people interested in the God that's being taught. People are looking for a powerful God, a God that's powerful enough to impact their lives and change 
their lives. And that's what we see happen here. God changed them, beginning with changing Ezra. It's not natural to pray that way for other people. It's more natural to say, man, they're bad. <laughs> it started with God changing Ezra. God gave Ezra his heart and was willing to die for their sin. They grieved for their sin. That is a miracle. That is the power of God. And it worked so effectively that it changed these people. That they were willing to make changes. And difficult changes. Very difficult changes. And Ezra arose and made the leaders of the Kohanim and the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore the oath. He wasn't so sure that they were going to do it. But swear, make, you know, promise that you're going to do this. Follow through on this. And they swear, we will do it. And even that's not enough, is it? When God spoke to us from Mount Sinai, we said, whatever you say, we will do. We promise. And within six weeks, we have a golden calf. Takes the power of the Holy Spirit. Ezra rose up before the house of God and went into the chamber of Yohanan. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. So he knows it's not over yet. Again, too often we just get by with, well, just confess and it's over. And... But it's more than just confession. It's repentance as well. A lot of people want revival, but there's not just revival. We need true reformation. A reforming, a changing needs to take place as well. And that's what this chapter is about. They issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem and to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem that whoever would not come within three days according to the instruction of the leaders and the elders and all his, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. Wow, that's heavy. You got three days to show up in Jerusalem, no matter where in Israel you are, you got three days to get down here, to set your house in order, right? have Find someone to watch your donkey while you're gone. you got three days to get here or your property is going to get confiscated and you'll be in big trouble. Cut you off from Israel. He took this serious. This was a serious, serious problem. And it is still a serious, serious problem today. And he had the authority now that was one of the things he received from Artaxerxes. That's why it's the capstone of the three decrees. Because Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes said that you can appoint judges and make laws to follow the laws of your God. So he had the authority now to do so. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month and on the 20th of the month and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. 
So the ninth month, that'd be about our December. This is the Hanukkah month. This is four days before Hanukkah, but Hanukkah didn't take place yet. The Maccabees weren't, didn't come on the scene yet. But this is where it's taking place, the ninth month. It's a rainy season in Israel. That's the winter is when it rains. It doesn't rain any other time. Winter season is when it rains. So there they are. It's cold and wet. There's no building big enough to house them all. And so they're standing out in the rain. They're all out there in the rain. He called them all together, and there they are in Jerusalem getting soaked. No umbrellas yet, you know, I don't know, whatever. But there they are, sopping wet, and he called them together. Then Ezra the Kohen stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession of, to the Lord your God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. So same three steps. He's now just saying it to a larger crowd. He's saying it to all those who weren't there initially. Confess the sin, the specific sin. He mentions it. Confess it to the Lord God that you may receive forgiveness and change your behavior. See if they are willing to do that. And all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. Praise the Lord. At least a willingness, at least a verbal willingness. The contract's not complete until it's signed. The repentance is not complete until the change takes place. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in the, our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. So, is this a delay tactic? Is this a diversion? Is this a stall to not ever have to do it? You know, it sounds like Congress. Oh, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. You know, four years go by, eight years go by, 12 years go by. We're going to get to it someday. You know, is that what they're trying to do? It's raining now, we can't do it now. We're trying, but we can't. But they got a plan at least. Set a plan in place. And we'll come at our appointed time. And there is an acknowledgement that this is serious. The fierce wrath of our God. Now there's no mention of what was taking place. We don't have any plague breaking out or anything like that. And so whether they're sensing that a fierce wrath of God, that God is just not happy, they know that God is not happy because it's sin. Or maybe there were some situations going on there. Maybe there were problems, but they're not mentioned. So it doesn't seem to be that there were any outward problems to say, oh no, there's a wrath of God. It might just be that they realize there is the wrath of God when we are in sin. And that also is greatly missing today. A judgment. There will be a judgment for sin. There will be judgment for rebellion. There will be a judgment for Lord, Lord, but no action. No change of heart. There is a judgment for hypocrisy. There will be a wrath of God and it will start in the house of God. Judgment will begin and it will spread to the whole world. 
All will be judged. All will stand before the judgment seat of God. And will be judged according to the deeds done in the flesh. How we live out our lives, we will be judged. Because how we live out our lives testifies whether or not we did the first three steps. Whether we acknowledged we're a sinner, and whether we confessed our sins, whether we received his forgiveness, and whether we received the power to change. By his grace. By his Holy Spirit. Only Johann, the son of Ashel, and this other guy, son of Tikva, Hope, opposed this. And then these two other guys, Levites, gave them support. So out of all the people gathered, he called all the leaders, all the family heads to come within the three days. So we got who knows how many thousands, tens of thousands of people there. And only two people are willing to speak up against this plan. And only two people are willing to voice support for those two people. Four out of the whole, that's amazing. That's a miracle in itself. That is what true revival and reformation looks like. Not just a bunch of people waving their hands and singing hallelujah. That's not revival. That's just a praise song. That's just a praise meeting, which is good. There's times for that. But revival is when change takes place. Massive change takes place. And that's what God needs to happen in his people before he comes. To be able to come for a bride without spot, without wrinkle, blameless, with no guile in their mouth. Spiritual virgins prepared to meet the groom. Then the descendants of the captivity did so. Ezra, the Kohen, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. Within three months they did the whole thing. They did the whole city, the whole nation. This was serious, they took it serious, they understood the seriousness of it, they acted upon it, they came up with a plan, they agreed on the plan, and they moved forward by God's grace in the plan. And fulfilled it. And completed it. God's work can move forward. And God's work can move forward that quickly. Change can take place that quickly. We're not evolutionists. We don't believe it's going to take millions and millions of years for God to change me. He speaks and it's done. He says, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. And the adulterous lady didn't say, well, okay, I just got a few more appointments to finish up, and when I'm done with those, then I'll change. Then I'll quit. You know, I've been doing this a long time. It's a hard habit to break. You're forgiven, go and sin no more. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of God's grace. Change our lives. Again, we cannot do it in our own strength. You try and do it in your own strength, you'll be miserable and you'll fail. The order is important. God is great. God is good. God is love. We are transgressors. 
confess the specific sin one at a time, receive forgiveness for that sin because of the blood of Messiah, and then receive the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to change. That's the order. That's simple. And yet every, so many want to shortcut it, change it, manipulate it, move it around, switch it around. This is not from a gospel account. This is from the book of Ezra. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is what Adam and Eve had to do. This is what Cain, uh, Abel did and Cain didn't. <laughs> it's the same process all throughout. And it works today just as effectively as it did then. Among the sons of the Kohanim who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of, and then it gives a list, and they gave their promises that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. So the Kohanim, the Bible Torah tells us they had, it's for certain sins, for certain positions, they had certain sacrifices. And this is right in harmony with the law of God. So they're following the law of God. So they offered that sacrifice. So there needs to be a blood sacrifice. Not only a change, but a blood sacrifice. Representing the Messiah for them and the Messiah for us. And a death to self and a change of heart. Not just the ram sacrifice. But the combination not changing without the Messiah, not just the Messiah without change. Both. Justification, sanctification. If you want the theological terms. That's God's plan of salvation for us. Now this specific issue that they are repenting and confessing is a serious issue. But there's some balancing texts for it as we apply it to our lives today. Here they are told to get rid of the pagan wives and the children born from that relationship. And they did so in massive numbers. But also in the Bible it tells us that an unbelieving spouse can become sanctified because of the believing spouse. And a believing spouse can have an influence on the unbelieving spouse. God had Hosea stay with his adulterous wife. So there are times and places, now when Paul's writing about it, that the house can be sanctified by the believing spouse, many of them most likely were married equally yoked as both unbelievers. And then Paul comes along, shares the gospel with them, and they come to the Lord, at least some of them in the family come to the Lord. And he says, well, you know, again, if you're already married, then make the best of it. And pray for your spouse, work for their salvation. And hopefully through your witness, through your life, through your testimony, they will come to the Lord as well and be sanctified as well. But in this situation, in this circumstance, at this time, they knew better, they shouldn't have done it. And the wives were, and no doubt it was men, women too, just mentioned men taking wives of the Canaanites and so on, but I have no doubt it would go the other way as well. That a change needed to take place, 
Messiah hadn't come yet. And he needed them to be faithful all the way through. He needed a pure lineage. Not just pure DNA, because he didn't have just Jewish DNA. Right? Yeshua had uh, Ahab, the prostitute, in his line, in his lineage. He had um, Ruth, the Moabitess, in his lineage. So it's not so much DNA, not DNA at all. But he needed to have faith through it. And if they would have failed here with this decree from Artaxerxes to build the temple again, to build the city and to restore it as a nation and to build up the walls, it wouldn't have happened. Corruption would have come. Division would have come. A house divided against itself would fall. Within a generation, two generations, three generations, it would collapse and fall. And it's horrible, and, 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 and that happens today as well. And we're unequally yoked, even when we are. I mean, Adam and Eve, they repented of their sin, and they had children. Some came to the Lord, some didn't. God created Adam and Eve, and they sinned against him. So having necessarily godly pair together doesn't necessarily always produce godly children, but a whole lot more likely to. And when there's division a whole lot more likely that there'll be a fall. Falling away in the next generation and then the next generation and it just gets worse and worse. So it is a serious thing. But the spiritual application certainly applies to all of us. We shouldn't be intermarrying with the world not necessarily only on the physical marriage basis but on the spiritual marriage basis our connections, our commitments, our contracts, where our desires are, where our heart is, where our promises are made. Who has our hearts? Are we more attached to our mortgage company or to our Lord? Are we more attached to our boss and our job or to our Lord? Are we more attached to our children or our Lord? Are we more attached to our spouse or our Lord? He needs to be first and foremost. Even if we don't have to necessarily physically leave them, we have to mentally not be ruled by the world. God has to come first. It's okay to make commitments. It's okay to sign mortgages. It's okay to be a citizen of a country, of a nation, of a state, and, and, and have allegiance to that. To sign a marriage contract and have allegiance to a person. But God is over it all. God has to rule supremely over it all. And if it comes down to a decision between obeying the world or obeying God, God has to come first. And if we get thrown into a lion's den or thrown into a fiery furnace or whatever... God has to come first. We have to be faithful. Faithful to our commitment to God as well as faithful to our other commitments. And as long as they're not in conflict with each other, fine and good. And as long as we're still having an influence on others, fine and good. We need to be a part of this world, to witness to the world, to be a light to this world, but not allow the world to become part of us. 
as we mingle, as we interact with the world. So easy, by beholding, we become changed. That can work. By beholding God, we become changed more and more into His image. But also as we behold sin, what we watch, what we read, what we participate in, who we hang out with, so much easier to copy them. Their words, their jokes, their values. God must come first and separate from sin. Otherwise, that's Babylon. We're still in Babylon. We need to come out of Babylon, come out of the confusion of this world. Confusion of theories and doctrines and teachings and uh, senses of morality and what is right and what is wrong. We need to follow God and God alone. He needs to be first and foremost. He needs to have our supreme loyalty and trust and devotion. And sometimes we need to break away. Sometimes we need to leave a job. If it's having too much an influence on us and everyone there is cursing all the time and we find ourselves cursing, well then maybe we can't handle that type of job. We might need to find something else. Work privately or something, some other way if we can't handle it. We're finding ourselves compromising and being drawn to it. We might need to separate away from it from a group, from a committee, from a neighborhood association. Or again, what we read, what we watch, what we listen to. Just listening to the news, it can depress us so much. We can get so wrapped up in the things of the world. And it distracts us from our focus on God. And we might need to cut back or cut off. Better to enter into heaven without eyes and without limbs. Physically, but spiritually, most importantly. And to miss out on heaven fully physically intact with all our friends and associations and attachments. Yeshua lived in this world among people and that worked in his Father's carpenter shop. Walked around the cities and the streets, Jerusalem and Galilee, other towns. And he did not allow it to affect him. He remained committed with the Lord. Yalkohan the Immerser, he bounced between among the people and out in the wilderness. If we need to take quiet time and break times that we're with the Lord to refresh us and to secure us with him. That's why we have the weekly services and midweek services. So we have a place where we can go and get away from it and be charged with God and recharged and have our minds renewed in his image. Also, so verse 20, also, and then it goes through a list of people that take 23 verses of people. That's how bad it was. Listing them, not just 23 names, but 23 verses of names. I don't know how they knew where to break the verse. I mean, you know, it was just one name after another. Just on and on and on. Because they figure after so many words, so many names, we'll put a, a verse, the comma there, put a verse there. 
They're all listed. Your sins will find you out. And they might be able to hide it away now, but it's going to be written in heaven. It's going to be written in the stars. It's going to be written in the clouds. All the books will be opened. And all will be known. Even your mother will know. right? Everyone's going to know. Unless it's been blotted out, the sins have been blotted out by the blood of Messiah. Otherwise, it'll stand in the judgment against us. And so the Bible, the Bible's a beautiful book. Doesn't hide anything, doesn't pull any punches, doesn't sugarcoat anything. They were made a sin, they were there, their name is there. They opposed the vote, their name is there. It's registered there. Over 2,000 years later, there we still know the four people who were against it. We don't know why they were against it. But they were against it. And this list of 23 verses. And then verse 44, and this is where the book ends. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Now hopefully they did right by the wives, paid alimony or whatever, or, and the children, hopefully they, doesn't tell us what they did for them, but hopefully they did something right. However they dealt with it, however they handled it. But the important part for the text and for us, in the scriptures, is the lesson to separate ourselves from sin. Separate ourselves from the devil. Separate ourselves from the carnal nature, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. To keep us from making mistakes in the future. To do everything we can in our part to do what's right for the mistakes that we made in the past. And so, in a moment when we pray, whatever part applies to you, whether God's calling you to be an Ezra, to pray and intercede for others that are on your mind and on your heart, whether this has been a, this specific sin or some other sin or some other the spiritual sin, in a moment when we pray, may God make us like an Ezra and have a true heart for those we're praying for. Even to the point that we could pray, Lord, cut me off from heaven if it takes that to change places with them. I'd give my place in heaven for them. I'll give my mansion in heaven for them. As Paul prayed, as Moses prayed. Secondly, if there's some sin in your life, It needs to be repented of, confessed, goes through the proper process. Acknowledging you're a sinner in need of help, needing of God's grace. Confess the sin specifically, whatever the sin is. Whatever attachment, whatever marriage to this world, whatever joining to the things of this world, whatever habit, thought, pattern, deed, action, desire, Motive, confess it. Whatever's holding you down. Whatever one thing you lack is. Whatever one thing you won't let go of for God. For Abraham, it was his son Isaac. Whatever it is, surrender it to God. Give it over to him.
and accept his forgiveness, receive his hope, receive his love, receive his mercy, receive his redemption, receive his change, and then receive the power of the Holy Spirit to enact the change, whatever that change is, with wisdom and guidance and direction, according to God's word, according to his whole word, not a piece here or a piece there, but balance the whole thing out with discretion and walk in his light, God's light, by his grace, on the upward path, fulfilling his will in your life. So whatever part applies to you, let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we are thankful for your love and we're so thankful for such an easy path of salvation that you've laid out for us. Lord, break the power of Satan over our hearts and minds that resist you, that are enmity against you, that resist making cha these changes, that resist confession and, and repentance. Give us a humble heart. Take out our hearts of stone. Thank you that you love us with everlasting love. Thank you that you haven't given up on us. Thank you that there is redemption, there is hope, there is your love, there is everlasting love. Thank you for your cleansing. Thank you for your deliverance over the sin. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Fill us with the Holy Spirit and empower us with your love to walk in your ways, to walk in your light, to walk uprightly, to walk in your truth, in your everlasting arms. Live your life in us and out of us and for us. And make us intercessors, praying for others with a love and a burden for others. Thank you for being our sacrifice. Thank you for carrying our guilt and our woe. And thank you for loving us for all eternity. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.